This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. I'm going to be joined today by Jeff Weniger, who's the Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Wisdom Tree. My co host is Warren Fries Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Jeff and I are rich representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervised Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products. Uh, and so, we really interesting show today. We've got Professor Siegel to kick us off with some comments on what's been happening in the markets. Jim Bianco of Bianco Research talked. Talking about uh, the global macro, and, and Jeff will be joining me for some commentary on that. But Professor, uh, some ups and downs this week. How are you looking at all the the latest inflation numbers, the ECB? We got a lot of stuff happening this week. Right. Well, first of all, the the inflation came in exactly on target, which isn't good <laughs> because uh, it, uh, it, it of course shows rising inflation, and of course none of the uh, data which is for the month of September, reflects anything about what is happening in Ukraine, which, of course, we all know what's happening to oil prices and agricultural prices, too. This will all show up uh, in a surge in, in the March uh, data. Um, we are in the markets, um, they're under pressure because of the, the war, because of the high oil prices. Um, and we've talked about that before. We see the continued rotation towards the value away from the growth um, that has uh, that really began last uh, November uh, and that we've talked about and predicted for uh, a, a long period of time. Um, and uh, I expect that uh, I expect that to, to, to continue. I mean, you know, like right now, the Dow is up uh, not much, but is up. And, you know, uh, um, Kathy Woods, uh, our innovation is down over 4%. I mean, this is what is the sort of thing that has been been happening um, uh, over the last couple months, this be, this mammoth turn away from long-duration um, uh, assets, which will, will continue. I, I was lecturing at the Securities Industry Association uh, all week, and, of course, everyone asks about you know, how does Fed tightening affect uh, returns and inflation, um, inflation effect returns. And in the long run, we know stocks are real assets. They overcome inflation. In the short run, in the tightening phase, we do know that, that stocks underperform their historical average, but still do better, much better than bonds and even better than, than cash most of the time. So they certainly what we expect this year is a modest uh, market. I don't expect the bear in the S&P. I did expect it in the NASDAQ, and we've got it in the NASDAQ. Could there be a bear in the S&P? Yeah. I mean, certainly. I mean, we only have to go down another 7%. Um, uh, and, 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 and the situation in Ukraine and, and, and tightening is, is uh, obviously going to be there. Um, uh, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised that if, if it happened. Um, but I, I think that that earnings are still going to come in, even despite the Fed tightening and and the, and the slowdown around two hundred and twenty dollars, and um, nineteen times earnings seems very good. By the way, look away from the U.S. I mean, Europe. Um, well, it, it it bounced back on uh, Wednesday, but it's been. I mean, you uh, looking around the world, you're really seeing ten to twelve, thirteen, fourteen times earnings. I mean, the U.S. market. Uh, the S and P at 19 is is uh, is the most expensive. Uh, X Tech were 17 and 16, which is extremely reasonable. So again, we've been lower, and other countries are lower. Um, but certainly historically, in the presence of really sharply negative real rates, these are these are really uh, quite uh, good returns. I do want to comment. We are going to have the Fed meeting. We kind of know it's going to be a quarter point, but what's going to be of interest is the dot plot. Um, what do other people think? And what are the projections of inflation? They've been way under. I wonder if a few of them are going to break away and, and we're going to see one or two dots that are going to be much more aggressive. Um, we also, there may be a dissent uh, uh, 
uh, in line. And we do get the producer price index uh, before the meeting that uh, CPI came in as expected. Uh, the truth of the matter is, and what I worried about and I said last week, is that the Fed is going to use Ukraine as an excuse not to tighten. And we need to tighten. We have to stop the slowdown in prices that started well before Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Professor, we're going to be talking with Jim Bianco here for the hour. Jim, I'd like to bring you in just for a few quick comments to, uh, before we say goodbye to the professor. Could you give us just your view? I know you've been talking a lot about the bond markets or the worst start to the bond market in in long time. How are you looking at the the global macro inflation, the bonds, and, and your, your worldview today, Jim, to start to start us off? I think the big story is going to be inflation. I agree with Dr. Siegel that it's really going to be around inflation. And I think that this, the story is going to be around the Federal Reserve and how they respond to inflation. I agree with him. With the Fed meeting next week, we're probably, we could very well see not only dissents, but we could see dissents in both directions. We could see some dissenting that the Fed should be moving aggressive, more aggressively. We could see some dissenting that the Fed should not be moving at all or moving less aggressively as well, too, because there's no settled path for the Fed right now. The current expectations in the marketplace are that the Fed is going to raise rates at every meeting this year. There's seven meetings. They're going to raise rates seven times. Um, even noted doves like Charlie Evans of the Chicago Fed has come out and said that he could see the Fed raising rates seven times in seven meetings. Now, that's assuming we don't have a dramatic slowdown that would put a damper on inflation in the first place. So I think that as we move forward from here, the story's really not going to be about growth. It's really not going to be about un- unemployment. I think it's going to be about inflation. And it's going to be about the path of inflation, what the Fed thinks they need to do about it. Professor, I yeah. don't think you're going to object to that. You know, it's exactly what I've been saying you know, for months, not years. <laughs> uh, uh, and they've got, to get a, they've got to get a handle on it. And we might get two-sided dissents. Um, uh, uh, actually, if, if he goes 25, Bullard, who was pretty hawkish, said that he would go for that at the first meeting, but not at the second, and that he wants to start some of the hikes being 50 basis points. And I think maybe because of Ukraine, there will be more settlement here. That's why I want to see the dot plots, because they're year-end. But I think how aggressive you have to be going forward um, you're going to get more of those uh, dissents uh, in, in the market. Now, we have not had one dissent for quite a long time. There should have been some last year in favor of, of tightening. Also, by the way, we haven't, I, I didn't mention, uh, that there should be some announcement on some sort of tapering plan. Uh, board was very uh, insistent upon it, and I think it's absolutely necessary. And um, uh, uh, we should hear about discussion of that uh, after the meeting, whether you devise the plan or say that they'll have the plan by the May meeting um, uh, is, is, uh, is, is certainly something that uh, I think uh, is also going to be very, very important to the markets. All right, Professor, we're going to say goodbye to you. Thanks for kicking us off the show with, with some comments as always. Thank you very much, Jeremy. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, so, Jim, uh, give us a, a little bit. You know, the beyond the beyond the Fed, we also had a big ECB meeting this week. They uh, they they sort of surprised the markets to some extent. Do you have any reaction to what you heard from the European Central Bank this week? Did did they surprise you at all? What was what's your reaction there? Yeah, I think that there was a surprise. Not only if I was to expand that out to the ECB, but the IMF as well too. That they have ratcheted up their inflation forecasts a lot more than people thought. They've pushed forward the idea that they might be <clears throat> closer to raising rates. They're further down uh, from the U.S. from raising rates, but they might be closer to raising rates than we initially saw. And we saw a big reaction in short-term interest rates in Europe moving up quite a bit on those reactions. And that fits with what Dr. Siegel was just saying about the dot plot. Um, the IMF and the ECB radically revised upward their inflation forecasts for 2022 and 2023. Will the Fed follow suit and radically upward its inflation forecast as well, too? And if so, does that portend this whole idea that the Fed might have to get very aggressive in this? The marketplace have to start thinking that, yeah, we could be looking at a sustained rate hike campaign 
throughout 2022. Do you do you have a baseline of where you think inflation ends the year? If you think if we if we think that's the most important variable for the markets, which a lot of us uh, have been saying, do you do you do you have a sense of how you would you would put the that inflation number? Yeah, I I would say that as far as the end of the year goes, there I'm going to make a statement and then it needs to be understood. I think the inflation rate is now 7.9%. In the next couple of months, it should move higher, especially with the big jump in energy and food prices because of the Russia-Ukraine war. But by the end of the year, I think it's going to be at a lower rate than 79 is now. Now that I've said that, that's not necessarily a good story. We all expect, because of the compare uh, the month-over-month numbers from a year ago, that it should probably peak and go down. If it doesn't, I think the markets are in big trouble. But the real question is, how fast does it go down? Where does it end the year? If it ends the year closer to 5%, I think that's going to be a bit of a problem for the market, because as opposed to ending the year closer to 3%. So I don't think it's as important to say that the inflation rate is going to peak and go down. It's going to be, how fast does it go down? And I would lend a guess that it would be not very fast. And that would keep the pressure on the Federal Reserve to keep raising rates and to keep markets under pressure as well, too. Yeah, Bullard had said on our show a few weeks back, 3.5% was his year-end number. And he's one of the more, more hawkish. Um, I don't know if you, if you found somebody more hawkish than Bullard, but it's, it's even 3.5% may not be high enough of where inflation may come in by the end of the year. That's exactly right. So it isn't. I know that Wall Street will like to say somewhere around May or June, oh, look, it peaked. It's all over with. Well, no, it it stopped getting worse, but it has to come down, I think, to at least three percent, the inflation rate for us to say it's truly over. That might not happen until, you know, the second half of 2023. The Federal Reserve is not going to be in a position to sit around and wait 18 months for the inflation rate to come down, considering how poorly they forecasted it in the last year. Remember, it was only a few months ago they were still saying that all of this was going to be transitory before they dropped that whole transitory thing. So they're going to have to keep the heat on. And I might add, last week at um, uh, Jay Powell's uh, Senate uh, hearings, he was asked by Senator Selby, is the Federal Reserve prepared to raise rates enough to put the economy into recession to stop the inflation rate? And Jay Powell's answer was, I think history will show that the answer is yes. He told us last week he's ready to raise rates enough to put the economy in the recession if he has to. I don't necessarily think that's wrong. I think we have to keep in mind how painful inflation is, especially 40 percent of the American public has less than $1,000 in savings in rents. Those people are really hurt badly by inflation. Uh, the rest of us that maybe own equities, own a home, we might say, look, you know, Case Schiller says that our house was up 18 percent last year. The S&P was up 29 percent last year. I can handle this inflation thing. Yeah, you can. But those other 40 percent can't. And I think the Fed understands that. They think that that's why they understand they've got to maybe deal out some serious medicine to try and bring in this inflation problem that we have. Let me uh, read you. I guess we're talking with Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. I think we have Jeff Winnegar, uh, who's a head of U.S. equity strategy, with us on the line as well. Jeff, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. And I actually have something I, that Jim just mentioned, which I think might be one of the most critical um, points here, is that the typical American just doesn't have much money sitting in a checking account. And, Jim, I guess my first question to you is, I mean, you look at some of these markets, the, the market internals here, it looks like ninth inning on COVID, it was time for airlines, it was time for casinos, time for restaurants. And then now it's almost like that's completely been thrown out the window here on account of maybe with jet fuel prices, suddenly you're just not going to hop on a flight and go to Vegas or go to Disney World. And it's almost like the trade, the, the COVID closing trade of 2020 is back on here, only this time the catalyst is crude oil. Yeah, let me, let me take that and answer it with a little bit of a different uh, spin on it. If you look at uh, Airbnb's 2021 record, uh, results, their earnings results, they had a record year in 2021. American Express had a record year in 2021. And I'll go with Stephen Squarey, the American Express CEO. He said that business travel in 2021, last year, 
was about one-third pre-COVID levels. That, well, that makes sense if anybody who travels on business knows it. That's about one-third. Personal travel last year was through the roof. It was records everywhere. The COVID unwind, you know, where we're all going to come out and we're going to travel and we're going to spend money on experiences, that's a nowcast. That's a nowcast means it's already happened. That happened in 2021. The problem is too many of us live in big blue states and big blue cities where we've been wearing masks until a few weeks ago. Most of the country's been open for about a year. Florida, Texas have been open for about a year. So that idea that we were going to have this big unfailing of this giant rush to the airport, giant, we're going to go on vacation now that COVID's over. We were doing that all through 2021. And I think we kind of overstated that kind of movement. And that's why I think we're getting a little bit disappointed that the supply chain problems the, the, are not coming down because we were hoping we were going to spend less money on stuff, more money on services, and then that, that stuff inflation, if you want to put it in those terms, would start to come down. But I, I think we're going to find out that's not going to be the case as much as we would hope for. When you think about the um, some of the market rotations here that you're seeing, uh, we, we've sort of t- we're going to focus more on the equities, but just sticking with since we're talking inflation, translate to, to some of your focus on the bond market. How do you think the bond market's reacted so far? Do you think the there's more to come in the ten year moving higher? It's been one of the, the hardest starts for the bond market. What, what, how do you see that shaping out the rest of the year? Yeah, I think the biggest story in the bond market right now is a technical one. It's called the flattening of the yield curve. Short term interest rates have been really powering higher. We got as high as 1.76% a little while ago today on the two-year note. By the way, we were at 1.76% on the 10-year note on Monday. So the two-year note is only four days behind where the, where the 10-year note was. And so short-term interest rates keep going up and up under the assumption that the Fed is going to have to get more and more aggressive. 10-year yields have been trading sideways for most of the last several months. I mean, there's a slight upward tilt to it, you know, and they're kind of pushing 2%. But a year ago, they were at 1.8%. So they're only slightly higher. A year ago, the two-year note was 20 basis points, 0.2%. And now it's 1.76. That flattening of the yield curve, I think, is telling us that even though the Fed's going to have to get aggressive on raising rates to deal with inflation, there's an old adage, the Fed doesn't know when to stop raising rates. So they keep hiking and hiking until something breaks. And that there's a fear that that might be what they have to do is raise rates and raise rates enough to deal with inflation that they might break something and we might have a severe slowdown or disruption in markets. And that's why I think you're seeing the 10-year not necessarily move up as much as short-term interest rates. So I think the story in interest rates remains. Look at what short-term interest rates are telling us, that flattening of the yield curve, and it is implying that the Fed has to get aggressive and maybe the market's worried that they might get a little too aggressive. Something might break later on this year or maybe into next year. On that inverted yeah. yield curve, we've been saying they're going to invert the curve more often. Uh, and it's, it's likely to get inverted here. And, and Siegel's not worried about it. He, he thinks that's just the demand for the long end is such is so high uh, that, that that's putting that pressure on there. It, do you think the inverted yield curve is a sign of the problem? It causes the problem? Um, do you agree it's not such a risk um, in, in this cycle? Well, I agree that it is, a, it is a, a reflection of the problem. The inverted yield curve doesn't cause a problem. It's a reflection of the environment we're in. And the environment that we're in is maybe a, a little bit more of a precarious environment than we think. Now, a quick word about the yield curve. It has got a perfect track record in predicting recessions. It's eight for eight going back to late 1960s. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to have a perfect track record forever. But it has so far... And the other twist in there is the Fed has been doing quantitative easing, buying bonds. There's a question as to whether or not the yield curve has been distorted because of all of the Fed's involvement in the market. And that's a very good probability or possibility, I should say, that it has been distorted. But given all that, I will stick with the standard definition that an inverted yield curve, and let me be clear on one other thing, a persistently inverted yield curve, not a yield curve that goes inverted for one day and then uninverts. It it goes inverted and it stays there week after week, month after month, is a worrisome sign and should be taken as a worrisome sign. And I think Dr. Siegel's right. Somewhere down the line, 
maybe we'll have an instance where it inverts and it doesn't lead to a recession or some other problem. But I'm not ready to say that this would be the time. But it could be. Okay, Jeff, come in there. Yeah. Well, Jim, I mean, talking about uh, rates and the effect on some things, I mean, we, we're markets guys. We tend to think about the S&P 500 or the Barclays Ag. But the thing that the typical person is thinking about is their home price. And we just moved this conforming mortgage rate from two and three quarters around Christmas uh, to north of four at this point. So, I mean, do you suspect that we have any risk here in housing? Is that the thing that we're not talking about enough? Or am I um, maybe overblowing that risk? Well, I, I, I'll, I'll answer the question two ways. Do I, I don't think a 4% mortgage is going to slow down the housing market, uh, largely because okay. if you look at Redfin, uh, Redfin.com, they've got some great data that Redfin looks at, you know, the number of houses that sell above the asking price, the number of days on the market. You know, they average houses on the market now for about a week. That's all it is on the market. This We wow. have a roaring housing market nationwide right now. Number of houses that trade above their asking price is about one-third of the houses in the country. These are extraordinary numbers. Can you, if you look at the last 15 years or so in the housing market. So a 4% mortgage is not a problem for the market. Uh, you know, there is an attitude adjustment or an attitude switch. Um, my theory has been that we, we, we undervalue the importance of work from home. It is really remaking our economy in a lot of ways more than we understand. Right. And one of the ways that's showing up is in our preferences for homes and that the housing market is being transformed and we're buying and selling homes because of that whole work from home remote work thing. And that's going to power the housing market as we go forward from here. I think it's going to take much, much higher um, mortgage rates before that would have any kind of bite on housing. You know, Jim, you also will have to wonder with the work-from-home trend, um, think about the three of us, right? I'm not going downtown to Chicago uh, into the loop to um, to visit clients. We're doing these things mostly from our house. And you think about we have, what, a dozen states now at $6 a gallon, and we're worried, right, that there's going to be a, a spending pinch. But maybe it's just that tens of millions of us are just flat-out not commuting to work and that this oil crisis has some sort of different effect because of the societal changes of COVID. Yeah, I would agree. And as a matter of fact, if you were to uh, look, I'm looking at the video right now. Uh, Jeremy, you're in the office and uh, Jeff and I are not in the office. And that means that one third of us are in the office. And that is about what the castle numbers say nationwide is what we are. Is we're about one third in the office. So I agree with you that, um, you know, a lot of things have changed. And one of the things that a lot of the work from homers have is, they look at the $6 or $5 gasoline prices and go, God, I'm glad I don't have to drive to work every day. I just have to use my car for leisure and, um, you know, going to the store or something like that. And that's a lot less travel than going to the office every single day. So a lot of things are definitely different in this post-COVID world right now that we're only now just starting to understand. Yeah, I haven't been the actually today, Jim. This is a special honor. It's the first day I'm back in our Wharton studio in in two years, um, and so it's where I am broadcasting live from our studio. We, uh, I have been going to New York. I mean, I have been basically staying at home for, for the last two years. A few little travels here and there, um, but not a lot. But I'm starting to see like a weekly commute back to New York once a week instead of like a three to four times. You know, it's sort of more like a once a week, and it's really for like dinner, for lunch, a social gathering of a group of people. Like you know, some of these things are are done better in person. There is a there is something to it, but uh, you don't definitely need to be there all day long. You know, I, I'll just uh, remind you when you said some things are done better in person. I agree with you. I have a couple of millennial kids, and their generation thinks this face-to-face meeting is a Zoom call. So we're still a little bit behind the times when it comes to their thinking. I, I, I've been I've been enjoying it. I guess it fits my style to be work from home. But I, even even me, who's probably the most work from home bullish person they can get, um, I'm starting to see the value of you guys. You know, just this morning we had somebody come to Philly to get in person together. So it's it's, it's I think it's some some real value there. Yeah, I, I would agree that the, the 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 need. Let me say this generically: the need for businesses to have their employees gather together in person will never go away. But why do we gather in person? What do we do when we're there? 
How do we do it? That's what we're starting to try and figure out. And the answer, I think, that as far as anybody can go, is, 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 is it isn't the 2019 model of why we gathered together in a, in a formal place called the office to do the job there. But we're not sure what it's going to be. But that doesn't mean it's bad. That doesn't mean it's dystopian. It's just we have to kind of think through these things as a as a entire workforce as we try to understand where we're going to go. Look, and there's companies that have wide variations. You know, the tech industry has been very upfront that you never have to come back to the office. The financial services firms, especially the big ones in like Manhattan, and I'm thinking of Goldman Sachs, they want everybody back five days a week. But if you know Goldman Sachs, that really means six days a week uh, as well, too. So. There's been a wide divergence as to what the office means for certain industries, and we're going to continue to try and sort that out over the next several years. Jim, let me let me pivot to a concept that's been making the rounds really only in the last year or two. It's this don't buy growth stocks on account of the discounting discounted present value of the distant cash flows, right? This this rising rate theme that I've latched onto myself. How much credence do you give to that theory? And maybe can you explain, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. Um, used to be the, the other way around with growth and value, and it seems to be that it's all about tell me interest rates and I'll tell you what's working in the market. A little bit of a different vibe these days. Yeah, that is a strong, I'll, I'll use the phrase, that is a strong narrative in the market. And the idea behind yeah. this is, and I heard Dr. Siegel mention this a minute ago, you've got very long duration, that's the fancy word we use, uh, stocks like these unprofitable tech stocks that ARC likes to own. The idea behind them is that their payoff is further down the road, many years down the road. And so they they they're, uh, look like they should be, their discounted cash flows matter a lot with the change in interest rates because you're waiting for a payoff that's further down the road. So we see these these unprofitable tech stocks react big on interest rates. When interest rates go up, they do very poorly. When interest rates go down, they do very well, as opposed to a value stock where your cash flows are now, this quarter, next quarter, the quarter after that. So when you change the discount rate as to uh, what those what those cash flows are worth, it isn't as impactful as it would be for those long duration assets. I get that argument, but I don't necessarily buy that argument uh, as, as well, too, because that is a new kind of post-COVID argument. We weren't making any of those arguments about technology stocks and interest rates pre-COVID. There was a little bit of it around some of the big tech names, but not much. So I do think right. that... It's really more about growth, and the reason that the value stocks, you know, the ones that have the immediate cash flows now um, and lower valuations are doing better now, and the growth stocks are, are not doing as well, and that's been the case for the last few months, is I think it's more about the uncertainty about the outlook for growth. If we have an inflation environment, if we're going to have a hostile Fed, if we're going to have a war in the Ukraine, uh, these are things that make you pause as to how much growth are we going to have in the economy as we go forward from here, and do I want to own stocks that are really requ required to have big growth as we go forward? And the answer might be, no, I'll take the safer alternative of value stocks. And that's why you've seen the value stocks doing a lot better than the growth stocks. And, of course, in the value bucket, in the value stock universe, is a lot of energy stocks. And those stocks have just been soaring like they're a cryptocurrency this year with some of the returns mm -hmm. that they've had. Yeah, and there's been this feeling as well. I mean, it, things have happened so so rapidly in the market. If you go back to, I don't know, Jim, maybe six, 12 months ago, there was a, 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 a theme circulating that this was going to be the roaring 20s. And then that just disappeared, and it became, no, let's talk about the 1970s. So... Is that a fair assessment to look at 2022, 2023 and start looking back at Nixon, Ford, and Carter? Or, or are we just trying to grasp at an old era that's completely unrelated? Yeah, that's what we always do in markets, right? We always try to compare it to the past. And you're right. At the beginning of 2021, the expectation was that's when we really had the reopening trade going. Remember, it was November of 2020. That the big event of November 2020 wasn't, in market terms, the election. It was more the, the vaccine announcement. 
And so in yep. 2021, you had the big roaring reopening trade because of the vaccine, and you had huge growth in the economy, and you had low inflation. That was the roaring 2020s argument. It's going to be like the 1920s when we're all going to be, you know, going to speakeasies again <laughs> one more time and stuff. Well, that gave way to a lot of the stimulus that we did. And remember, we also did another $1,400 stimulus check in March of 2021, which I think was a little too much. That gave way to inflation. Remember, January 2021, the inflation rate was 1.4 percent. 13 months later, in February 2022, it's 7.9 uh, percent as well. So as the inflation rate has moved up, naturally we go back and we look at, you're right, we look at the late 60s into the 70s and say, it's a little bit like that. Some people said it's like the 40s in the post-World War II era, in the late 40s as well. I, I think this cycle is completely unique to itself. And one of the things I think we've got to get a handle on is in, two, in 2020, we had a recession after 10 years of growth. In 2008 or, two, or, or so, we had 2007 to 2009, we had a recession after 10 years of growth. We've become accustomed to these very long expansion cycles. But prior to that, the average expansion was about three to five years. And we are now maybe looking at some kind of return to faster cycles, that these cycles are not going to take a decade. We're two years into this expansion. If we're a year away from another recession, if we're a year away from another recession, all we're saying is, man, it's going to be more like what we used to have up until 20 or 30 years ago was three to five year cycles. And then we had a recession and it lasted six months or eight months. And then we had another three to five year expansion as opposed to what we've been seeing with these 10 or 12 year expansions. So I think we're not ready to adjust to go. Maybe these cycles are a little bit faster. And that's why we keep jumping around from, oh, it's the 20s. It's the 1920s. Oh, it's the 1960s. And who knows what we're going to be saying it's going to be like in six months from now. We just talked a lot about the macro inflation bonds. Uh, you know, one of the asset classes standing out this year, you mentioned energy and, and equities, uh, but commodities have been on a tear. Uh, how's, how do you see, you know, has it come too far? Do you see more conflicts uh, and sort of pressures on commodity prices higher from the conflict in, in Ukraine and Russia? What, what's your sense of what's been going on in the commodity market? Yeah, well, the first thing about the commodity markets is, Everything is going up in the commodity markets. I know when we say, well, the commodities are going up, most people say, yeah, well, energy's been on a gigantic, you know, crude oil prices, gasoline prices have been roaring higher, and that's true. So have food prices. So have industrial metals prices. Uh, so have the soft commodities um, as well, too. So have precious metals. Everything, you know, um, if you could drop it on your toe, it has been taking off and going higher in price. Now, I think what is coming from it is various things. One, this reopening that we've had in the economy, there is shortages, and that's been helping to push commodities. But in the last couple of weeks, this war with Russia and the Ukraine, they are big commodity producers there. We all know about energy. We all talk about energy. But the, maybe the thing we should be talking about is food. There is, they are, you know, the Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe. Think Kansas and Nebraska times four. That's what they are right now. And they are. And the problem is that they are now in the middle of a war. They don't have the tractors in their fields in March like we do. They have tanks in their fields. Uh, they are not shipping out their winter wheat like they should be out of Odessa and Mariupol. They're being shelled right now. And so this is having a huge impact on food prices as well, too. In fact, I'd even go one step further and say that is at least as big as the as the story about higher uh, energy prices as well. So commodities have been just going ballistic. You know, with that, you've had tremendous speculation in commodities as well, too. And that's why you've seen, especially this week, some wild movements in commodity prices. You know, on Wednesday, two days ago, we had a 30% range in the price of crude oil. Hit 130 in, um, intraday as the high, and $105 is the low. There are uh, almost unprecedented types of moves. There's only been a couple of times in history that we've ever seen crude oil have those kind of moves. And what's driving that has been tremendous speculation. 
outlook for commodities, probably up, I think, from here. But hold on. It is not going to be a simple ride higher. It's going to be, uh, you know, just a wild thrill ride as commodity prices go higher. Jim, talking about commodities, I logged on to Twitter. There was Mr. Jim Bianco, the London Metals Exchange. The other one that you didn't mention was nickel. There was a big controversy on nickel with respect to the LME. Your tweet took off from that. I also saw Cliff Asmus talking about this issue as well. I never really thought of Cliff as talking too much about the commodities complex. But what the heck happened in nickel? And here's the the follow-up. How important is it? Well, let me start with the second part. Nickel is not just the, you know, uh, the thing in your pocket, but it is a it is a very important strategic metal that goes into uh, batteries and it, it goes into making stainless steel. Uh, and it, there's a lot of other very important applications for the metal itself of nickel. The London Metal Exchange has been around for 145 years. It all centers around uh, a, a company in China called Syngen. It is the largest nickel producer in the world. The founder of that company and the, um, uh, the current owner is a big nickel speculator. His nickname in the metals market is Big Shot. That tells you kind of how they think about him uh, as well. He was betting, making a massive bet that the price of nickel would fall. He was in market parlance short 100,000 tons of nickel. Yes, that is a huge unfathomable amount of nickel to be short and he got caught in a short squeeze and the price of nickel went up from $20,000 a ton to $100,000 a ton in just a few days and what the London Metal Exchange found out is there's an old adage you've probably heard it right if you if you um, if you owe the bank a, a million dollars uh, a hundred dollars you're in trouble but if you owe the bank a billion dollars the bank's in trouble well, if you're short 100,000 tons of, of nickel and the price goes up 500% in a couple of days, you're going to get a margin call of several billion dollars. There was question whether or not he could meet that margin call. And if he couldn't, then his broker is then hooked to beat that margin call, and they couldn't. If his broker couldn't meet it, then the exchange would have to meet it. Maybe the exchange couldn't meet it. So the London Metal Exchange did this unthinkable. They said... All the trades in Tuesday and Tuesday afternoon, 9,000 of them were summarily canceled. The price is not $100,000. The price is now $50,000. And so his margin call was half the amount that he needed to be. Well, a lot of people, including Cliff Asness, screamed to follow. There were people that were long nickel. There were people that had trades on. They were just canceled. Your trade doesn't exist anymore. The profit you thought you had, gone. It's just gone. And so a lot of people said that this was unfair. It was against the rules. Now, to finish off this nickel story, this big shot from Sinjen came out yesterday and said he still wants to stay short the nickel market. He still thinks it's going to go down. Well, if his short was being squeezed and was the problem that we had with soaring nickel prices, then it's not going to be resolved if he wants to stay short. The London Metal Exchange has been closed. Nickel trading has not been, it's been closed since Tuesday. It was supposed to open today, Friday. But when he said he was going to stay short, they did not. They announced they were not going to open it on Friday to be continued, this story. So really, it's really a story about an exchange that got caught in the wrong way. And did they do right by their customers by canceling all those trades? A lot of people like me, Chris Laff, Cliff Asness, and some others, screaming, no, they did not do right by their customers. They actually did harm to their customers by doing it. And I'm sure we're going to see lawsuits and a lot of other talk about this story in the weeks and months to come. It's interesting. You know, we follow this market pretty closely. Like we have a very large commodity business in Europe, uh, including those kind of nickel products. Um, And so it's interesting that those products still were trading, even though the futures market uh, was closed. Uh, And then you also have the futures trading in Shanghai. Um, And so what's interesting 
if you know you look at the Shanghai price now, they could say you know one of my team sent me the Shanghai price and it was down limit on the day seventeen percent today. You say well that's that could be this guy in Shanghai pushing the price down to try to influence the market because it wasn't that much volume on the Shanghai exchange. Um, but it, but it's interesting like where do you think the market opens when it opens? Because um, so much of it was this quote unquote short squeeze. Now the other thing is this guy from my understanding, is not just like a hedge fund speculator betting against it. They actually produce nickel. So they are like hedging production, is my understanding. And so he's not like this naked short short person. It was that he... Now, there's questions of can he deliver the nickel that's specified on that contract because his nickel is supposedly not the nickel that London accepts. So there's some deals going on on that where they were sort of selling forward their nickel production. And so it, it's sort of very interesting dynamics of how these forward contracts work and, and what's actually going on there. And Jeremy... It's, yeah, you're right. It's problematic for, it's ahead, problematic for, for respect of our, of our exchanges. I mean, I... I I know people that are still crowing about what happened to the Hunt brothers 42 years ago in silver when they were long, and then they changed the margin requirements in the middle of the night on those guys. And and here we are 40 years later still talking about this stuff. And you got Jim Bianco, you got Cliff Asnes saying, there's something not right here in base metals here in London. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's 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 the t- That's the type of thing that sometimes at these market turning points or these – uh, periods of high volatility, you end up looking back in retrospect and say, ooh, maybe that was the thing I needed to focus on. Yeah, I, I would agree with you that this is going to have long ramifications. But, uh, Jeremy, you're right. This the Xinjiang is the largest nickel producer in China. They produce they have $40 billion of revenue. That's how big that they are right now. They may be one of the largest nickel producers in the world. Now, they produce what's called a matte nickel, and you need to deliver nickel cathodes. So not to get too technical about it, but exactly what they produce, you cannot deliver on the specifications of this contract, but you can use that price for that contract to hedge. And yes, the nickel trades in Singapore, and it trades in other places as well, too. And it's much, much smaller than the London Metal Exchange, and there is talk of manipulation and, and, and the like. This is the history of commodities. Big, giant players come in and they try and throw their weight around and try and manipulate the prices of commodities. This has happened before. Uh, Jeff, you mentioned the Hunt Brothers, you know, and it will happen. It's happening now. It's happened in other commodities as well, too. And it will probably continue to happen in the future. But what's different now is the London Metal Exchange came out and canceled a bunch of trades. Normally, we don't see that. Trading exists. Yes, they could change margin requirements. Sometimes they cancel trades because of a fat finger error, a computer technology error, okay? Sometimes they uh, you know, cancel trades because there's an unusual circumstance. But to cancel 9,000 trades because the unusual circumstance is somebody needs to pay a margin call, they can't meet it, that's not the way it works. If it was you or me or any other mere mortal, they would just margin me or you out of this business. Right. But I guess the answer is, you know, if you're going to blow up, make sure you can take down the exchange and your broker with you and they'll take care of you on the way out. And that seems to be what this story is evolving into. Well, and let's contrast that to the pandemic when oil went negative and there was some people there where it was a similar type of uh, I forget all the dynamics, but they, they couldn't take the delivery and they had to pay people to take the delivery of the oil and you got a negative oil price. And did did they cancel the trades there? No, they did not cancel the trades. You're right. It was it was one contract on delivery day and it went to minus $40. And no, yes, you could have easily have said at that point, negative 40 oil traded a negative price. Right. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. They didn't cancel any of those trades. The players that got caught up in that lost money. And that's supposed to be the hallmark of a market, not that you lose money, that it's always there. And that when a trade takes place and a price takes place, that is recorded history forever and that you can trust it. And when you put on a trade in a market and you win or you lose, you win or you lose. You don't worry that, wow, this is really working for me. Are they going to come out and pull the rug out from underneath me and take that trade away from me? Or I'm losing, maybe they'll save me by canceling these trades as well, too. That's the real issue with the London exchange is not so much the dynamics of nickel. That's important, too. 
but just that their response to this was to basically cancel 9,000 trades. And it's been described, too, as what they did was in order to help this one Chinese manufacturer meet its margin call, they had 9,000 other people pay it by canceling their trades that they canceled, effectively canceled $4 billion worth of trades, which made his margin call, this Chinese producers, $4 billion less. So it was everybody else in the market had to subsidize the one big loser. That's unprecedented. And that's why people like Cliff and myself have been howling. This is not right. This is not how markets are supposed to work. You're supposed to take your lumps if you make a mistake, and you're supposed to reap the rewards if you get on the right side of a trade. You're not supposed to worry that somebody's going to just say it never happened. It's very, it'd be very interested to see how people now take the information. The exchange is trying to do some netting of exposure. They're trying to, before it actually opens, get bids from people to see if anybody wants to uh, net out some of their longs, um, something we're, we're looking at. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see, like, you know, the, the last price was $48,000. they are they are quoting prices with plus, you know, a plus a number. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this all opens, especially based on what these other markets like. And listen, Jim, the the not the, I mean, our our product trading in London is a is a basket of those futures. So it's it that is a indication of what's happening in the you know what people are that that is freely traded. Uh, it, it's sort of like a you could say it's like a closing because there's no arbitrage mechanism there, but it's it's an interesting indication of what's going on. I want to pivot um, a little bit from the commodities, Jeff, to uh, Jim, you have long focused on macro. Uh, I, I guess uh, you could maybe sort of talk through, you've talked, and maybe this exchange issue is, is one of those connections to you've been focusing a lot on the digital assets, crypto economy. What got you so motivated there? Uh, is this one of the solutions that that uh, decentralization of, of finance got you hooked? What t- Tell us a little bit about your, your interest in crypto. Yeah, that started in 2017 when I did look at a lot of other people. I bought Bitcoin and I got, you know, interested in Bitcoin and started learning a little bit more about it. And then I pivoted from just, you know, to use the phrase, a hodler of Bitcoin um, to looking at Ethereum and looking at the whole decentralized financial world. And I started to realize that what it really is, is it's an attempt to remake the current financial system in a new permissionless decentralized way. Those are fancy words to say no one can shut it down. No one can be censored like, we're do, like we've done with Canadian truckers or we're trying to do with Russia. Uh, and everybody gets the same deal. Everybody has the same uh, terms of, uh, of a trade. Some just do it with more zeros on the end of it than others. But it's exactly the same trade. And it got me very, very interested. And you're right. A lot of people are saying Look, if, if you look at, you know, the Emergencies Act in Canada with the Canadian truckers and freezing their money, and if you look at what we've done to Russia by freezing their foreign assets, and then if you look at what we've done with Russian oligarchs, that, you know, we're freezing their money, confiscating their yachts, telling Roman Abramovich he can't sell the Chelsea football team in London uh, as well, too. People are asking questions, Is you know, is my money safe? Now, and the answer is yes, but in the future, if I'm on the wrong side of an issue or somebody doesn't like me in a position of power, will they sanction me by taking my money away from me? And if the answer is that is a fear, what do I do to protect myself? One of the ways people have suggested is cryptocurrencies. Because of their decentralized permissionless way, uh, way that they operate, If I hold my money in an electronic wallet, cold storage wallet, as they call it, and I hold my own private keys, which is the password for my account, no government, no powerful person, no one can take that away from me. And that's why it's getting more and more chatter. I don't know if enough people are actually moving their money that way, but they're at least becoming aware that that is an alternative to the current financial system. If the current financial system is going to continue to go down this road of censoring people that they don't like, censoring people that do activities they don't like, not by saying you broke the law, but by saying your bank account no longer functions anymore, your money is gone. That is very disquieting, I think, for a lot of people. And you're sort of like an independent research firm, so you can think creatively and not be holding to any 
uh, sort of higher power that doesn't let you do that. How, when you're when you're talking to a lot of your institutional clients, how do you sense their firms or institutions are are thinking about this? So you think they've started to make the leap with you? Where do you think they are in in looking at this type of stuff? I think we're early days. I would say that if I went back two years ago, that the average um, that there was ridicule and laughter. You know, this is not serious. This is um, something that it's a bunch of, you know, uh, tech children are playing with. That stopped about ooh, a year, 18 months ago, and they started to seriously think about it, seriously try to understand it. But the movement so far is, okay, I'll open an, an account on a regulated exchange like a Coinbase or a Gemini, um, an FTX, and I'll buy some Bitcoin or I'll buy some Ethereum and I'll hold it. Okay, that's as far as they... If any of them have made the leap, that's as far as they've gotten. Are they, and I'll use some fancy words here, are they staking their coins? Are they lending on their coins? Are they borrowing against their coins? Are they, you know, are, are they doing anything else in terms of the options that you have available in decentralized finance? Very, very few of them are doing it now, but they are asking questions about it and uh, trying to understand how a liquidity pool works, or an automatic market maker. What does staking your coin mean? How do you generate these sky-high interest rates? Why do you generate these sky-high interest rates that are available in the crypto universe? So they're starting to try and get their head around it. So we're not quite there, but we're still very, very early days in this. Yeah, Jeff and you are, are, are only like a mile away in Chicago. Um, Jeff is a traditional <laughs> dividend value investor. I don't know that we've gotten Jeff around to the crypto bug, so maybe uh, the two of you could spend some time and you could you could try to get him get him over the hump. Um, Jeff, any we have thirty seconds. Any closing thoughts? Just the, the the side note to what Jim was just pointing out is that the system is based on dollar hegemony. One of the concerns I have, Jeremy and Jim, is that does all of this end up pushing? Moscow closer to Beijing, um, do they end up trying to do a, a, an increase in a renminbi-based society? It will take many, many years, but that is something that, that you have to think about for the next 10, 20 years as a, a change in the monetary order. Well, that's a good tease for our next week conversation. We're talking with Rushir Sharma, who's a big emerging market strategist next week on Behind the Markets. Uh, thank you, Jim, for joining us here. Jeff, thank you as well. Uh, thanks to our, our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Chris Tukes. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You listen, uh, listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.